Go ahead and have a seat, brothers. And pray with me this morning, please. Father, we just cannot comprehend how much you love us. Whatever notion of love that my brothers have here this morning, I know it is deficient. They cannot know how much you love them. I don't know how much you love me. I've spent my life studying your word, acquiring degrees, sitting under godly men and teaching, and Lord, every one of those experiences has not increased my knowledge, but rather it has just simply increased my awareness of how grand you are. Every step, every journey I take, I confess, Lord, that though I might think myself smart, Or maybe I might fall into the trap of falling into pride. Lord, even in the middle of all of those self-aggrandizing thoughts, you are so patient, so loving. And Father, how gently you bring me back to realizing how small I am. How unworthy I am to be here. And that you would use a weak vessel like me and that you would use weak vessels like my brothers and Lord in our weakness may we boast may we boast in our frailty may we boast in nothing else that we are weak so that Christ might be magnified so that Christ that you Jesus might be seen for who you are And so that when we walk out of here, people don't say, yeah, I can see why God uses them. Look how gifted they are. No. Oh, God. I pray that we would boast in confounding the world. They say, how in the world does God use a pitiful group of men like this? Like me. And Father, in that we recognize our identity. That in our weakness, then you make us strong, that you elevate us to be children of God. You gift us your glory, that you gift us your love, you gift us your grace. I pray that my brothers would leave here and that I would leave here with a reminder of how much you love us and how much you have given to us. So Lord, help us to walk a walk worthy of the gospel of Christ, worthy of the gifts that you have lavished upon us. So though we are undeserving, though we are weak, and though we boast in our weakness, at the same time we rejoice that you have made a bunch of paupers and pitiful men, sons of God, kings to reign with Christ, inheritors of the earth, May we now walk into that identity with joy. May we live it out in love. And in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's men said, amen. Well, brothers, it has been a fun weekend. I cannot believe it has gone by so quickly. You know, I look for 
God in the little things of the day. And yesterday I was reminded of God's providence. Because six of us went to a donut shop. And it just so happened, I mean like, it was a donut shop, a Starbucks, and a Mexican food restaurant, like all right next to each other. It was like the trifecta of culinary holiness. And then we walked into the store, and we're like, they were just mostly sold out, they were about to close. Jeremiah was like, hey, we'll, we'll take that group of donuts there. She starts packaging them up, and she's like, you know what, we want to close early. Do you just want the rest of these donuts? I tell you, I tell you, God and his amazing grace. We walked out of there, and at 11 o'clock last night, I had a donut. At midnight, I had a donut. (laughs) Had stomach issues about 3 (laughs) o'clock. I got up in the morning and had another donut. And I figured out that Ava's Donuts is not closed till 2 o'clock, so on the way out of town, I'm going to go buy and get another dozen donuts for my kids. (laughs) You know, it's a lot of fun to be here. It's a lot of fun to be able to get to know and to talk with you guys, to hear your stories. It's a lot of fun to be able to uh, joke back and forth. Uh, Pastor Kent has been amazing, hasn't he? I mean, if, if... if the past, yes, I mean, if the pastorate fails him, he should go up into stand-up comedy. I mean, like, I still see his water right here. And uh, I don't know what this garbage is anyway, so. Oh, there's a note here with my water. What does it say? It says, most pious and holy Dr. Reverend Pastor Nathan Smith, courtesy of Ben Moline. Thank you, Ben. I appreciate that. Uh, if you have any job openings, guys, Ben's, Ben's looking. <laughs> Not at all. No, that, that's hilarious. Heard you guys had a lot of fun with Pastor Ben out there uh, learning the ropes and uh, compass navigation. Well done, Major Moline, teaching these guys. Sounds like it was, a, it was a great time. The conference team really has been incredible. Like, I think of Isaiah and Jared, Justin, <laughs> Mr. Ashburn. I mean, what an MC up here every day. I told him yesterday, I said, I mean, what, what an amazing job. A lot of people get MC, but he's able to MC and lead and make us laugh at the same time. And that, that, that is giftedness. So thank you to the conference team. And thank you to all you guys for just carving out this weekend and being here. I, I truly am thankful. Uh, coming out and hearing to hearing Kent and I, and especially you hear me every Sunday, and I don't have many new stories. I'm not a great of a conference speaker, but I pray, Lord, that we can uh, pray to the Lord that we can actually uh, still have great times in the Word together and challenge one another. And I would like you to go ahead and get out your uh, book, your uh, your notebook, and go to that page that has a stick figure on it. And I want you to look at that page again. And if you have not talked to um, Someone about that page, what the last 12 months have been like, I would encourage you to still do that, whether today, maybe in the upcoming weeks. Also, also, uh, I would like you to flip to a new page and draw a new stick figure. Okay, we're going to shift gears here in just a moment. We have a brief exercise. I want you to draw a stick figure right in the middle of the page again, like you did last time. 
And on the left side, I want you to think about how people would describe you. Not how you would describe you, but how you think other people would describe you. So just write down some words, some adjectives. Maybe it's a way to describe your personality or your character. Maybe it's uh, maybe something about you. A lot of people actually identify me as the pastor that grew up in Africa, right? It's an identifying mark. How would people describe you? Take a moment there and just fill that out. Left side of the page, how would people describe, how do you think people would describe you? We are on a journey. Life is a journey. The road is long, the land is parched, and heaven is our rest. Heaven is our goal. The arms of Christ is our destination. And I pray that this time has been an oasis for you. And I hope you think of it in terms like that. Don't think of this as a mountaintop, but as an oasis that moves you through the desert to the next oasis. And then God willing, the next oasis after that. And then you take another drink and you continue the journey. And so it is in the Christian life until Jesus returns until or unless he takes you home. This is a journey together to encourage one another, to exhort one another. And this specifically has been a time for us to recalibrate because on any journey you need to stop and say, where am I at and where am I going? Even the exercise this morning is stopping and thinking, who am I and who do I want to be? And these are things that sometimes in the busyness of life we don't give a lot of thought to. What are we? Who are we? Where are we going? This has been a time to recalibrate, to stop, to reflect, to see where you are, to see what path you're on, to be watchful. Remember our text, to be watchful, stand firm in the faith, to act like men, let everything you do be done in love, or to be watchful, seeking the Lord and expecting God to meet you. Part of faith is believing that God is going to meet you on the road of life, that he is going to be beside you in the road of life, and that you are going to see him at the end of the road of life. A life of faith and expectancy. Don't neglect to watch, to pray, to call out to him, specifically, honestly. Pray Psalm 130 to to call out to the Lord and says, Hear me, O God, out of the depths of my heart I cry to you. On that page that you wrote the very first day, Friday night, you're calling out to him about those things? The things you're just writing this morning, to call out to him about the things that you are strong in and weak in, thank God for his blessings and grace, but also, here's where I want to be. Oh God, how I want to get there, but how do I get there? As you call out, do you not know that your heavenly father loves you? That he wants to hear your heart burdens and your soul anguish? I'm going to hear the words of Jesus himself. Look at the birds of the air that neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. How much more of value are you? It's a rhetorical question. God loves you more than you can possibly know. Learn from Nathaniel. Learn to sit under the fig tree. Put yourself daily in that place to feed off of that love that God has for you. Knowing that God wants to show you greater things. 
that he wants to show you his glory. In John 17, Jesus prayed to his father. He said, Father, I can't wait for them to come to where I am at so I can show them you and your glory. There's this God who desires you. And after you reflect and watch, you need to reset. After you've ascertained where you're at, now, okay, now what do I need to reset to? As Pastor Ken so powerfully shared yesterday, to reset to the gospel, to reset to who Christ is, to reset to what it means to be a godly man of God. To act like men, to believe, take God at his word, to act and to obey. As we reflect and as we reset, and now we're going to re-engage and we're going to continue the climb. And what is going to be the manner of our climb? It's the last part of that verse. The manner of our climb. The outward garments of our life. Let all that you do be done in love. You know what's interesting is that the final imperative, let everything you do be done in love, love softens the other imperatives. You can be watchful. You can stand firm in the faith. You can act like a man and you can have courage. But it's love that softens those imperatives. That softens and makes us look like Christ. Love is indeed the outer garment of the Christian faith. You know, in Tanzania, where I grew up, you can be driving down the road in the middle of the savannah, and uh, you'll see men, I mean, literally a mile off, these men wearing this. It's called a shuka. It's a Maasai blanket. And they'll be standing there like this, sometimes with only their shuka and nothing else on. But you know what's impressive about these Maasai guys, and this pattern is one of about four different patterns that the Maasai wear. But the red and dark black, or the red and dark gray, is their most common pattern. You can see these guys from a long way away. Their outer garment designates them as belonging to a specific tribe. No other tribe wears this pattern. No other tribe has this garment. It demarcates them for who they are. They stand out in the savannah. They stand out in a crowd. Even in the middle, even in the middle of a city, you'll see them wearing it, and they'll maybe even have a suit and tie on, but across their shoulders, they proudly wear their shuka. This is the outer garment. It's the first thing that people see. It's what designates them as Maasai. Interestingly enough, just like the British redcoats or other soldiers that have gone before them, red is a favorite color of the warrior so that when you're injured, guess what? can't see the blood. If you're injured, you can't see where the puncture wound is. Meant to hide it. These Maasai warriors are known as the fiercest warriors in all of Africa. Matter of fact, they're used by other tribes as the boogeyman. And they'll tell their kids and they say, you better behave or I'm going to send a Maasai on you. The outer garment of the Maasai designates who he is. What is the outer garment of the Christian? Now stop and think about this. What is the outer garment of the Christian? What is the first thing that we see? What is it that demarcates us and makes us stand out in the savannah of this world, in the parched desert of this world, that even walking through city, people can tell who we are based upon that outer garment. And it's this, it's this 
commands, let all that you do be done in love. Love is the outer garment of the Christian faith. But let's stop and ask the question. What are the outer garments of your faith? People always ask, especially in New Connections, if you come through Heritage, they say, I have a good question and answer time. And people will always ask different questions about my theological bent and everything. And, you know, some Christians do wear their systematic theology as their outer garment. I'm an Arminian. I'm a Calvinist. And they wave that banner and wave that flag, and some preachers even preach that as kind of their outer garment of ministry. You know what? I'm actually very reformed in my doctrine. That, that, is, that is my understanding of what God's word teaches. If you stand under my preaching, yes. I preach specifically God's word and his sovereignty. But I don't wear that systematic theology as my outer garment. I don't use the terminology. Matter of fact, the Christians who wear their systematic theology on the outside, it's like wearing your underwear on the outside of your clothes. It just looks weird and makes everybody else feel uncomfortable. But maybe it's not your systematic theology. Maybe your outer garment is your political affiliation or conviction. You're wearing the underwear of your politics on the outside. It's the first thing people see about you. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have a systematic theology. I'm not saying you shouldn't have political convictions. But like your undergarments, they should be there, but let's not look at them. In other words, they shouldn't be the first thing that we see. What about your personal accomplishments? Now, this goes into other... We we wear those on the outside. The first thing we may say is, Hello, my name is Dr. Nathan Smith, holy and pious one. (laughs) Or you may say, Hey, my name is so-and-so, and I own that business over there. Just thought you should know. Maybe you wear your physique as the outer garment of who you are. You can't help but uh, lean forward and... Oh, did I just flex that bicep? Sorry, did you see that? Okay. (laughs) Maybe you wear the busyness as your outer garment. How you doing? I'm just so busy. I just want everybody to know I'm getting a lot accomplished. Man, my task list. (sighs) Or maybe your outer garment is your business. That's who you are. What are the outer garments of your faith, brothers? What did you write on the right side of your page? What do you hope people describe you as? Now, there's some elasticity and then some things that are fine. And how we may even specifically understand God's word and some things I really want to be known by. But you know one thing that should be front and center on every one of our pages? Now, here's what I want you to go back to that page. And in the middle of that page, and if you have to write over other words and even cross out some, the biggest word on that page should be love. Love. It is the outer garment that designates you more than anything else as a follower of Christ. You know, one of the things, man, I don't get everything right as a leader, but more often than not, I don't. Man, COVID has kicked me in the butt. Having to make decisions and think about things. Mass, no mass, physical distancing, how do we do church and all the convictions in between. 
The thing that grieves my heart more than anything, brothers, is not that we disagree, but how many Christians forsake the outer garments of love in order to be right? Or in order to engage in a dialogue, if we were to look at our Facebook pages, would love scream from our Facebook pages? Would the people that work under us say, yeah, you know what? He's a leader and you know what? He's tough, but he loves. Or the people that are employers, would they describe us as love, loving? Let all that you do be done in love. (laughs) I hate these statements in scripture. I'm being honest with you. Let most of what you do be done in love. I can handle that. Give me some wiggle room. But God's word doesn't like to give us wiggle room. It likes to call us to something. It calls us to a standard. Don't be manly. Act like men. Don't be partial men. Be men. Don't be partially loving. Be loving. Don't be loving in some things you do. Be loving in everything you do. You know, I love God's word and I'm going to preach it. I want to preach it boldly and I want to preach it honestly. And sometimes there is hard truth and we're talking about the wrath of God. But I have a down in the depths of my heart conviction that whatever whatever passage I deal with, I am very cognizant that in that sermon or lesson, I pray that people see love of God. Like, brothers, I'm here not to chastise you. Like, I'm here because I want to show you God's love for you, but also challenge you to live in that love and to display that love. Some months back, a young lady came forward after a service, and I have so many gospel conversations after Sunday morning services, and you'd be surprised about the number and the types of people that walk through our doors. Never, never misunderstand or be confused about that. She walked up and she said, Pastor, I'm visiting, I'm a lesbian, and I don't like anything your church stands for. But I walked in and I felt loved by this church. And I felt loved by your sermon. Even though I didn't disagree, and even though I didn't agree with a thing you said. And she said, I'll be back. You wouldn't think of her as this, but that's what she said. I don't get it right a lot of the times, guys, and it's especially in the confines of my home. Oh, my goodness. I hope my wife describes me as a loving husband, but oh, my goodness, how often I am selfish. I'm tired. And I think I deserve dot, 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 dot. But the Bible says, let everything you do be done in love. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 13, if you would, for just a moment. You may think, yep, I was wondering if you're going to go there. Yes, we are, but maybe not in the way that you think we're going to go there. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1 to verse 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels and have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver my body up to be burned, but I have not love, 
I gain nothing. If you have all the divine power to be able to communicate in the tongues of men and angels, all of this, by the way, is hypothetical exaggeration, just a tangential statement. People say, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, therefore we can speak in the tongues of men and angels. That is a total misunderstanding of this text. He's basically saying, if I could eat a cow, I would. No one's eating a cow, right? It's, it's an exaggeration. If I could do all of these amazing, wondrous things, but have not love. You know all what I am? All I am is just a noisy gong. If I have prophetic powers of oratory and I can fill the pulpit and speak truth and understand all the mysteries and the knowledge and you are just bewildered by my powers of eloquence and understanding the mysteries of God, but have not love. It says, I am nothing. If I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Number verse three, I think this really kind of stabs at the heart of Baptistic evangelicalism, of pious, sacrificial workmanship. We thump our chests. Look at everything I've given away. I've delivered up my body to be burned. My zeal for truth. My zeal for good causes. For abortion or, or you know, stemming that tide. For, for, for helping the poor. For racial reconciliation. Just fill in the blank. Whatever it is. I'm zealous for those things. But if I have not love, I gain nothing. Guys, what is the outer garment of our faith? What are you known for? What do you you designate yourself as? Who are you? If there is no love, what's the point? Now stop thinking of squishy, romantic, emotionally unstable, worldly love. Because we know we recoil at that. Do I want to be known as love? I want to be known as strong. That's what I want to write in the center of my page. I want other men to look at me and say, that's a strong man. Stop thinking of love as some sort of squishy, romantic, worldly, effective love. Rather, think of a powerful, death-defying, sacrificing kindness that holds on, forgives, enriches, and outlasts. A love that by its very core is the strongest and most beautiful and powerful thing that we could imagine. Think of a love exemplified by God, by Jesus on the cross. I've often thought, when I read one of the early church fathers, he said, we often think about God's almighty power, his omnipotence that enabled him to hang on the cross. And we thought it wasn't his power that kept him nailed to the cross. It was his love that kept him nailed to the cross. Love for you. Love for me. 
Love for sinners. Man, he's holding every molecule together. He's holding the nails together that are holding him to the cross. While holding the cross together. While holding the molecules of the centurion and his soldiers of their bodies as they nail him to the cross. But what kept him there? Love. Love. If you walk out right now and you're already thinking like, all right, I can already see where this is going. Pastor is going to challenge me to be more loving. You've already missed the point. If you launch right to the activity that you are supposed to do, you're going to rob yourself of Christian joy from here until heaven. Stop jumping to the do and miss out on the meditating of where that love comes from. Are you trying to love with your own love? And maybe that's why you're frustrated, frankly. You know, your love, when you, when you love with your love, you draw people to yourself. When you love with God's love, you draw people to God. When you love with your love, you draw people to yourself. When you love with God's love, you draw people to God. If you want a healthy marriage, love your wife with God's love to God. And as you grow together to God, your love for each other will be deeper than anything you can comprehend. Stop trying to figure out how to please your wife. Figure out how to love your wife like Christ loved the church. Right? We live to please our wives, to make them happy. No, love them to God where they will find happiness. I'm not saying don't go buy her some flowers or take her out to dinner. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying, love with the right love. Now you say, wait, I am not a naturally loving person. All right, well, fine. I understand that. I hear you. Therefore, let's look at someone who was a naturally loving person, okay? His name was John. You thought I was going to say Jesus. No, John. John was by his nature a loving person. Matter of fact, John died by most accounts around AD 98 during the reign of Emperor Trajan. Jerome, one of the early church fathers, this is the Apostle John who wrote John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Revelation. Outside of the Apostle Paul, John wrote more of the New Testament than anybody. He died in the reign of Emperor Trajan. Jerome says in his commentary on Galatians that the aged Apostle John was so frail in his final days at Ephesus that he had to be carried into the church. One phrase was constantly on his lips. My little children love one another. Asked why he always said this, he replied, it is the Lord's command. And if this alone be done, it is enough. John's theology, if you read through the Gospel of John, and first, second, and third John, can best be described as a theology of love. He taught that God is a God of love, that God loved his own son, that God loved the world, that God is loved by Christ, that Christ loved his disciples, that Christ's disciples loved him, that all men should love Christ, that we should love one another, that love fulfills the law. Love was a critical part of every element of John's teaching. It just was. This is a man who wore the outer garments of the Christian faith well. Now, I always like to kind of throw a little trip ups and come back to it. You said, I said that he was naturally a loving man. 
Well, that's actually a true statement. It became a natural part of who he became. But he didn't start there. Matter of fact, I, I, love, I love studies of individual people in the, in the Bible, and one of them is John. In Mark chapter 3, verse 17, man, he was anything but loving. In Mark chapter 3, verse 17, he's described in the list of disciples, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom Jesus gave the name Boanerges, or Boanerges, that is, he called them, sons of... You know what that meant? These two guys made a big racket wherever they went. You just have to walk through his life, and you see that... When, when uh, they came across some guy who was casting out demons, John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he is not following us. He was gruff. He was rough. Here we see that John was not a passive personality. He was aggressive. He was competitive. He didn't like what someone else was doing and he didn't have control of it. He condemned a man who was ministering in the name of Jesus just because the man wasn't a part of their group. They went into a Samaritan village. When the Samaritans rejected Jesus, James James and John saw it. Luke chapter 9 verse 54. And they said, Lord... I know you want to save these people, but do you just want us to call down fire and just destroy them? Not a very loving guy, is he? Hey, you reject me, I'm going to call fire from heaven to destroy you. But you know, we, know, we know people like that, right? We challenge them, we confront them, we interact with them, and their first response is, that's John. He was an achieving, self-seeking ladder climber. (laughs) James and John go to Jesus, and they came up to him and said to him in Mark chapter 10, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Pretty bold. He said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one on your left, in your glory. To request to be seated with Christ is not a wrong request. But the motive of their heart was one of, we want power. We want recognition. We want that. We want to have access to your very right hand. This does not seem like the John who writes 1 John and talks about God is love. This doesn't sound like the John that we just read about where Jerome said that even as he was carried on his deathbed, he would so gently say to those around him, my beloved children, just love one another. What happened in his life? Something changed him. And it began on a Thursday evening just before Passover. They were in the Garden of Gethsemane. John saw Jesus arrested, betrayed, He fled into the night. But now we have an interesting statement by John himself that he later came back and slipped in into the trial in the courts of Caiaphas. He was there, and you know what? Peter actually showed up too, and he was able to get kind of sneak Peter in. Can you imagine John with his hood up, trying to be 
inconspicuous, and he's watching Jesus, and then all of a sudden, someone smacks Jesus. His blood boils. Jesus, fight back. Jesus, I've seen you calm the storm. Obliterate these men. I know who you are. Why aren't you responding? And he watched them strike Jesus. And Jesus just stood there and took it. John then followed Jesus all the way to the cross. Matter of fact, he's the only disciple that's a first-hand account witness of the crucifixion. Peter had fled by this time. It was John, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and a couple of the other women. As far as we know, he was the, actual, the only actual eyewitness to Jesus' crucifixion. He was standing close enough to, for, to the cross for Jesus to see him. He saw the men drive the nails into his hand. Jesus, fight back. They lifted him up on the cross. Jesus, come down off the cross. I know you can. Why aren't you doing it? And then he hears Jesus say, firsthand, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even in the middle of his crucifixion, he was able to love those who hated him. Even more amazing, perhaps, is when Jesus saw the mother, his mother, and the disciple whom he loved, John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. As he was dying, thank you. As Jesus, whoop, hello. As Jesus was dying, he had the presence of mind to still care for someone else. He, while he was in the middle of his suffering, he was concerned about the well-being of his mother. And so he looked at John and said, take care of her. I don't know about you, but in the middle of my suffering, all I can think about is me. When, I, when I'm struggling, all I can think about are my needs. I wish it wasn't so. When I'm struggling, when I've been hurt or when I am hurting, I feel like everybody else, you know, in, our, in my mind, I feel like everybody else should pity me. Now, I'm ashamed to say that, right? But let's be honest. So depraved is our sinful heart. And yet Jesus doesn't seem to give thought to himself. He says, Father, forgive them. John, take care of my mother. Jesus' death changed everything for John. Three days later, or on the third day, don't be tripped up by literal 24-hour days. The first day is Friday, second day is Saturday, the Sabbath where Jesus rested in the tomb. And then the first day of the week after he completed his work at the beginning of Sunday morning, Jesus rose in power from the dead. And who are the first disciples that show up on station? Peter starts running, but he's an old fart, so John passes him by. First and last time you hear, because we're a bunch of men, that I will say from the pulpit fart. 
It's recorded. <laughs> I just want you to know, whoever's watching this, that they brought this into Photoshop and edited it. <laughs> Overlaid words, I did not say that. Actually, in Swahili, you know, Jambo is hello. Jamba is fart. So I love when people come to Tanzania because the Americans normally get it wrong. You know, they get up in front and they're like, Jamba, everybody! And the Africans are like, okay. <laughs> and if I can ruin something for you, have you ever gotten a smoothie from Jamba Juice? Think about fart juice next time that you are uh, <laughs> slurping down that green spinach smoothie. I'm convinced that two college guys started that company and they were like, hey, 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 we know what this means. <laughs> oh, man. All right, back to the cross of resurrection. Uh, so John outruns Peter, looks in the tomb. He sees, he believes. In that event, the cross, Jesus dying, the gospel forever changed him. I am so convinced that so many of us do not know love, do not appreciate love, do not know how to live out love because so many Christians so no, know so little about the cross, know so little about what Jesus went through. And how he suffered. And yet 1 John chapter 3 verse 16. Now remember this is John who saw all of those things. And he's writing later in life. And in 1 John 3.16 he says. By this we know love. That he laid down his life for us. You want to know what the standard of love is? It is not Kenny Rogers. Or anybody else. Who writes some sappy love song. Sorry if you like Kenny Rogers, right? How many of you young guys have no idea who that is, right? <laughs> okay. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. 1 John 3.16. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 1 John 4, 8 through 10. Anyone who does not know, does not love, does not know God, because God is love. You know what's amazing to me? Is that God is power. God is omnipotence. But the outer garments of God are love. Is that an amazing thought to you? Because it is to me. That the outer garments of God, the first thing that defines everything he is and everything he does is that he wraps himself in love. A couple days ago, I was sitting on the front porch when it was cold and I actually had this very blanket. And my eight-year-old son came and sat on my lap. And you know what I did? I took my blanket and wrapped him in it on my lap. You know what God wants to do? This is his defining characteristic. Yes, he is holy. 
Yes, he is powerful, but all of that stems from his defining being of love. And he wants to invite us into that relationship and then wrap us in that love and we are never let go. So the defining characteristic of the Christian is that we have been wrapped in love and that we live that love. And that people see us from a long way away, not by our personality, but because of a father who had such a deep love for us. 1 John 3, 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction of God's wrath, accomplishing forgiveness of our sins. Sometimes we think that when we talk about the Holy Spirit being, being the inspired writer of Scripture, sometimes we think he just kind of spoke through the guy and the guy wrote it down. And we divorce the fact that John wrote these words through his own experience. And that in the sovereignty of God, he allowed John to be there to witness, to experience the heartache, to move from being a son of thunder to being what was called in history, they named him the Apostle of Love. These are his own words. How God transformed his life. All right, we have reflected, we have reset on Christ, been called to act like men. And what does it mean to act like men? It's to do everything in love. To re-engage with love is to re-engage with the gospel. It is to re-engage with Christ. It's to put on Christ. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. And all of those things are clothed and cloaked in love. Where does this love come from? You cannot manufacture it. If you're walking out of here and saying, all right, I got to be more loving, you missed the point. Because you can't manufacture. Where does this love come from? It comes from God. You cannot love, number one, unless you are in Christ. You're a believer. You can manifest some shallow iterations of love, but you cannot love as you, love, you, as you are in love unless you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That, that's the beginning statement. And then number two, you cannot love unless you're like Nathaniel sitting under that fig tree every single day abiding in God's presence. In prayer, and saying, I am weak, and I don't have the love. You know what? I hate this verse. You know, do everything you do in love and love because I recognize that I can't do it. There's other things that you can feel like you can put on the facade and do it in your own strength, but I just can't do it. I, I, I don't have enough strength. I don't have enough love. I am not a naturally loving person. But I want God to make me a naturally loving person. And so I sit in the context of his love under the fig tree every single day saying, Lord, from the depths of my heart, I cry out to you. Answer me. Help me realize who you are and how I should live. And then I believe that he will not pass me by. And as I abide in him, John 15, I will bear much fruit. Stop trying to grow the fruit. Sit under the fig tree, abide in his presence, and let the Holy Spirit 
bring forth fruit as you place yourself in his love. Where does this love come from? From God, from abiding under the fig tree. You can't manufacture it. It's only God's love through you. Now, what does this love give? You know, love is not just making someone else feel better about themselves. That's, that's worldly love. Or, or we love to be loved. That's the most common form of love. You know, the most form and common form of worldly love is loving or trying to be loving in order to get love. We love our wives because we want love. We love that girl because we want her to love us back. We love others and we hang out with each other and play cornhole and, and we, go, we go and do these things and we're doing that. I'm not there because I'm hoping to show someone love. I'm hoping there that they will give me affirmation. Now they'll see me as a fun guy to be around. See, I'm loving to get something. Jesus loved the sinner. While we're yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5. He loved unequivocally. Even when we didn't give anything back, he still loved. What does this love give? 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. What kind of love is it? That we should be called, what? Children of God. God's love is a love that gives. It's a love that dignifies. It's a love that elevates. It's a love that blesses. It's a love that guards. What does it mean to have a love like God's? It's, it's a love that dignifies the other person. It's not loving to get love back. It's loving to dignify, to elevate them, to see. And I want to see my wife as I love her as a husband. I want to elevate her, love her, lift her closer to Christ. What does this love look like practically? Well, 1 Corinthians 13, right? It's such a great description. Let's turn there for just a minute. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is like read at every Christian wedding, but you know what? This is first talking about the love of Christ. At first, I want to read it through. And I want you to think of it, this is the kind of love that God has demonstrated. Verse 13 to 4. Verse 13, verse 4. Chapter 13, verse 4. Good grief. Love is patient and kind. Isn't that what God has done for us? Love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Matter of fact, God left his way in Christ, Philippians 2, and stepped down into our path in order so that we might be elevated to glory with him. He could have said, I'm sitting up in heaven. You got to come to me. He didn't. He said, I'm going to give up my rights and I'm going to come to you. It is not irritable or resentful. Good thing God is not irritable. I'm just irritated this morning. Goodbye, earth. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And this is the love of God, bearing with the Israelites, bearing with us sinful Gentiles, hoping, believing, enduring. Verse 8, love never ends. God's love has no expiration date. 
To enter into God's love, to be clothed with his love, is to be in a place that, from which you will and cannot ever leave. Love. Now let's read it again. What is my love? With my spouse, with that girlfriend, with my friends, my brothers, or those around me. Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and love never ends. Now faith, hope, and love abide, verse 13, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now you ask the question, but what if my love is cold? What if my love is cold? What do I do? Well, the first thing you need to ask is, has something else captivated your affections? You know, 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Is something else vampirically leeching your love? Is it love of flesh? You know, it's interesting in the book of Proverbs that when the man gives himself to the prostitute, it says we give our strength. We give our years. We give our life. Pornography, sexual addictions, all they do is leech life. Fleshly desires, pride. It's not from the Father, but it's from the world. Is my love cold? Has something else been leeching those affections? Are you trying to love out of your own strength? Stop, reflect, and ask the question. Don't treat sins lightly. What sins are in your life that need to be dealt with? Otherwise, they will leech that love from you. Now you ask the question, say, where do I go from here? What does it look like to recalibrate, to re-engage? Romans chapter 13, verse 9. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. You know the time. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Wake up, brothers. Salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is gone. The day is at hand. Let us cast off the works of darkness. Put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, but not in quarreling or jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Clothe yourself with Christ. Let everything you do be done in love. In other words, Take Christ and that identity, reset to him, clothe yourself in his love, and let everything you do be done in his love. Wrap people in his love, beginning with your wife and your kids and those closest to you. Show them, let you be seen from a mile away that you belong to the tribe of Christ.
What is your outer garment? What do people know you for? Put on love. Put on Christ. Brothers, it's not easy. It's not easy. You guys have made commitments. You've written things down in your books. Where do I go from here? Re-engage with just try harder? No. Some of the fig tree. See the Father's love for you. And let day by day, like John, being confronted with Christ, may you become more naturally a loving person so that one day, one day, it can be said of you, you are a naturally loving person. You didn't start out that way. But you have been so rewired by the grace and the goodness of God that love flows out of you. (laughs) When I'm 80 years old, I hope I'm the most loving man on the block. When I'm 50 years old, I hope I'm the most loving empty nester around. As a guy in his late 30s, with young kids, I hope I so overflow with love that my kids just salivate for what I have. So brothers, re-engage. Let everything you do be done in love. If you bow your heads with me. Pastors, I'm going to go ahead and ask for you to come down. As they're coming down, I want to give a couple of instructions. Here's what we're going to do. We have a gift for you, a small compass, just to remind you of this weekend. The pastors are going to line up here in the front. I'm going to pray over them. Then I'm going to invite DC shepherds and deacons as well. They're going to come. Pray over them. And then they're going to go out here to all of you. And when you're ready, when you're ready, we just go to one of them and they just want to give you a compass. And they want to just pray over you briefly. They just want to have a specific word of prayer over you, of blessing. When these, they're done praying over you, one at a time, just quietly please go back to your seat and call out to God, Psalm 130, help me, help me to recalibrate, to re-engage, to be seen from a distance as a member of the tribe of Christ, clothed in the love of Jesus, wrapping others in the love of Christ. I'm going to pray for my pastors first. Jesus, thank you for the privilege of my brothers that I get to serve in the trenches with. Bless them. Bless their marriages. Deacons, DC shepherds, if you would quietly slip out, come to one of these pastors. They will pray over you. And then to the rest of you, when they go up and you're ready, you go to them.
While a few are still praying, I'd encourage you, take this moment, quiet your heart, talk to the Lord. If you don't know what to pray, open up to Psalm 130. Pray through it. Or why don't you pray through 1 Corinthians chapter 16. God, help me to be watchful. Help me to believe and expect. Learn to pray through scripture. But just take a few moments and pray. Talk to the Lord. Spend time in under the fig tree right now. you would look up for just a moment. I find it amazing. The Maasai warrior, the British red coat, they wore red to hide their bleeding. But Jesus didn't hide his bleeding. He said, look at my blood. Look at me bleed for you. See this love. See this blood shed for you. See how much I love you. And know that nothing can take you away from that love. You can remain seated. You can stand. But we're going to sing, here's my heart, Lord. Here's my heart. Let's re-engage. Let's step back into the battle. Let's cross the next expanse of desert to the next oasis and say here's my heart Lord speak what is true Jesus I pray over my brothers and Holy Spirit I pray truth into their hearts and minds and life through your power speak truth to them that they are loved. And Lord, may we now go out in that love and clothe ourselves with Christ. May we recalibrate our lives to Jesus and clothe ourselves with him. May the outer garments of our life be love, be Jesus, and may we be seen a long way off. Bless them as they drive home. Keep them safe. May there be laughter. May there be conversation. May it all bring glory to you. And in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's men said, Amen, Amen, brothers. You are dismissed. Drive safe, all right? We love you.